All right, man. Good to see all of you. We are in chapter uh, five in our study of the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bible, you want to turn to that. And we are, I want to pick up with verse 16. Uh, in some ways, um, I'm not sure what I mean by that phrase, but this, this section, which we're about to start, is really one of the most important chapters in the New Testament. Um, because in this section of Paul's magisterial book to the Galatians, his first book that he wrote of the 13 that we have in the scriptures, uh, he's trying to make an argument against the Judaizers, which I hope you remember what they are. That if you want a more complete justification and a more complete sanctification, you need to keep the law. Paul has, I think, dismantled that position but now he is showing, and that's, this is why this passage is so important, that the grace gospel he preaches, grace by faith through saved plus nothing else, produces a more complete sanctification because of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you let me do two things here. Number one, it always is important to remember that the Holy Spirit is the sign of the new covenant. The old covenant, the law, mosaic covenant, if you want to call it that, was fulfilled in Jesus, his, his completed work, his death, burial, and resurrection. The law is completed. It's fulfilled. It doesn't have anything to do with its nature. It was good. It was perfect. It was righteous. Romans 7, 12 tells us. But the problem was the human sin. And so Jesus pays the price and therefore inaugurates the new covenant. If you remember in the upper room discourse when Jesus inaugurates the Lord's table, he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So that language is important, and the book of Hebrews especially makes much of the new covenant language. Holy Spirit is a sign of the new covenant. And secondly, the Holy Spirit is the energizing power of sanctification. However, as human beings who come to faith in Christ, every morning we may wake up, we must make a choice. Are we going to walk, I'm going to use the language Paul uses here, are we going to walk by the flesh or are we going to walk by the spirit? Now, I'm going to open this morning's class by reading from Romans chapter 7. And I want to read a few verses from Romans chapter 7, first verses 4 through 6. And then I want to read from chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. I think you're familiar with this. If you're not, this will get you familiar with it. Chapter 7 of the book of Romans is autobiographical. It's Paul talking about his life. He has given the triumph of chapter 6, where we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's our new identity, our new position. But we will still struggle with sin. Listen to what he says. Likewise, my, I'm in Romans 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in our flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law having died to that which we saw as captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not of the old way of the written code. Let me go to verse 15 of Romans 7. So he stated what I just read, the same thing he's saying in, Rome, in Galatians chapter 5. But now his personal struggle with this, I'm in verse 15, for I do not understand my actions. I do what I what I want. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law waging war against my law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I may myself serve the law of God with my mind, when I flesh, I serve the law of sin. You saw there Paul stating his position, but then stating his struggle. And that, I believe, and most expositors actually do, most do, that this is Paul describing his post-Damascus Road experience. This is his struggle as a Christian. He's not talking about before he came to Christ. He's talking about after he came to Christ. And that's the struggle of sanctification. That's the reality of sanctification. Our position, our identity in Christ, Romans 6, is clear. I'm dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. But I have a struggle going on inside me. That struggle inside inside me is between the flesh and the spirit. And as an old Baptist preacher used to say, inside of me, I have two dogs. A dog that represents the flesh and a dog that represents the spirit. Which one wins that daily struggle? Here was his answer. The one I feed the most. Do you understand the analogy? So that's what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. He's reaching the apex of his discussion of sanctification. Let's make sure we're clear. Justification is that it's forensic legal term, we're declared righteous when we put our faith in Christ. That's our identity. That's who we are. Sanctification is the process of being transformed into the image of Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's discussing now. He is not talking about salvation here. He's talking about the battle in the process of sanctification between the flesh and the spirit. So I did a lot of preliminary groundbreaking to help you and and myself as well to understand what he's saying here. Now let's begin verse 16. This is a command. It's in the imperative mood. But I say, walk by the Spirit. That little preposition by could be translated in. It could be translated with. So I like to flesh it out. But I say walk in, by, and with the Spirit. And obviously, I'm sure this is true. All of your translations have Spirit capitalized. It's referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the sign of the new covenant, who indwells us. We are his temple. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, the Greek word for flesh is sarx. All he, he doesn't mean the, the skin and bone that you have now all wearing short sleeve shirts so that you see. He's talking about a print. It's a metaphor. He's talking about the symbol of that which is opposed to the Holy Spirit. That flesh principle is the principle of sin. It's what Paul talked about in Romans 7 that I read just a few moments ago. And so it's that, it's one of our three enemies as Christians. As Christians, we have three enemies. We have the world, that system that stands opposed to God. We have the devil, and we have the flesh. So he is not talking about the first two enemies. He's talking about the third enemy, the flesh. That inner struggle, inner, excuse me, inner capacity, inner desire to do that which is displeasing to God. And so he says, he's setting up a dichotomy here. Every day you have to choose. And by the way, one more point, because you're getting the same word coming up in, in discussing the flesh. The word walk there, I know this won't help you. I'm going to say it nonetheless. It's peripateo, which is the normal walk. It's not an extraordinary, unusual walk. It's the normal walk of life. And it implies direction. It, it implies you're going forward. Not that you're going, because you, normally you don't walk backward. You know, you don't, you're, you're facing forward, but you don't walk backward, you're walking forward. So he's talking about the norm of your life should be that you walk in by or with the Spirit. And in doing that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What again? What I read in Paul's autobiography in Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do, 
I don't seem to be able to do what I want to do. Woe is me. What's he talking about? Just what he's saying here. This struggle between the flesh and the spirit. The reality of that struggle, when I worked with young men of college, this was the thing that I would constantly talk to them about. Don't, don't regard the struggle that you're feeling in your life as a Christian as something negative. That is evidence that the transformation process is going on in your life. You have to decide, which one am I going to serve? What, what, what are the strategies I'm going to develop to deal with what he talks here about the desires of the flesh? And then when you read this, verse 16, sanctification is not a passive process. You understand what I mean by that sentence? It's not a passive process. We are actively involved in this. And so he's, he's zeroing in on that. These, are, again, are commands. Walk in by or with the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now he wants to explain that, but you had your hand up. Well, I was just thinking, you know, we forsake not the assembly of ourselves together, because we do need to encourage one another in the Lord. And, yeah. um, and I think that's, it's a, like you say, it's a process, a walk in our lives, and it isn't always just straight up toward heaven. There's some detours of the devil in our state, and if we've got a brother alongside of us, he can say, you know, maybe not, Bill. Maybe we need to consider this. And and it might help him. You know, like you did as president of the college, encouraging people to stay on the path and not be discouraged because the devil will discourage us. Yeah. Yeah. And we cannot yeah. be discouraged because he is true. Yeah. And he will see us through. That's right. All right, good. Now he wants to explain this to us. Verse 17. For, explaining it now, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Doesn't, that has echoes of Romans 7, which we just read. It's, it's, it's the same language, it's the same words that he talked about in Romans 7. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Well, it's me. I do what I don't want to do, and I can't seem to do what I want to do. Same language. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Uh, now, you have to remember everything has been saying about that in the context of Galatians with the Judaizers challenging him and his, his grace gospel and all of that. Because remember, you are not saved, you're not justified by works, you're justified by faith. So he's just restating in one simple sentence what he's been saying. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, what he wants to do here in the next cluster of verses is make sure we do not misunderstand what he means by the flesh. So he's going to get very specific here. This is not, um, more than likely, this is not an exhaustive list of vices. I love that word, vices. Some expositors call this one of the vice lists of Paul. Now, I don't think any of you know what I'm talking about. But, you know, yeah, vice, you've heard of that? Okay. He's gonna, I'm going to group these. For the works of the flesh are evident. They're not hidden. They're not secret. Everybody knows what they are. And he groups them into four groups. Group number one are sexual sins. For the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, the word there is a very, very broad word. It's porneia. It's a very broad word. It includes almost everything that goes against the ethical standards of God when it comes to the use of our body. And I mean, I don't... I. 
I don't really believe I have to explain any of this or illustrate any of this. If I need to explain it or illustrate, stay after class and I'll talk to you about it. What's that? <laughs> right. But I mean, you know, no matter what, you, you, almost anything you can imagine fits into the word porneia. It's a broad word. But then he itemizes two additional things. Uh, I read from the ESV translation. They translate this impurity. Now, again, impurity, you know what that means. You think of, of, of all the detergent deals with impurities on your clothes. That's not what he's talking about. And when he uses the word impurity, he means it's, it's an Old Testament word, uncleanness. Being unclean in word and deed. So again, God sets the standard of words and deeds. To be impure is to go against those standards. It involves thoughts. It involves actions. It involves deeds. And he goes on, and debauchery. Uh, that, again, that, that's, uh, that's how NIV translates it. ESV translates it sensuality. That sensuality or debauchery. It's a very strong word. Open, shameless display of immorality. So he, he does, broad word, porneia, a word of our mind and our attitudes, impurity, and then an extreme debauchery or sensuality, an open, shameless display of immorality. Now, I don't know about you men. I'm the oldest one in this room. But I never thought I would live to see some of the open, shameless things of immorality that I'm seeing in our culture. It's in advertisements. It's, it's, it's in entertainment. It's in sports. It's in just about everything you can imagine. It's an open and, and the important adjective there, shameless display of sexual immorality. When, when I was growing up in, you know, in the 1950s and, and very early 60s, honestly, and I, some of you are close to my age, but I think you would agree, there was a degree of shame with some of this stuff. I mean, people, people engaged in things, but it was a degree of shame with it. And so you didn't see it so openly, defiantly, shamelessly being displayed. Today it's gone. I mean, there's it's, it's just hardly any boundaries to any of, of the immoral things that are part of our world and our culture. And so, and again, Paul is writing, when he's writing this, he's writing to a Greco-Roman city. The Greco-Roman Empire was like that. Open, shameless display of immoral things. Uh, and if you want an example of that, go visit the ruins of Pompeii, south of Rome, and you will see it there. 42 brothels in that city. And the direction to the brothels, it's on the pavement, you can see it, was an enlarged male phallus directing you to the brothel. I mean, that, that was shameless. I, I don't think I've seen any of that in New York City or Chicago. Maybe it is there. I don't know where that's the direction side. But it, we're getting close in a lot of this. And so all Paul is saying is, you want the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh? Here's, here's some examples. And in the Greco-Roman world, to, this is to whom Paul's writing this letter, this, they would not have, well, I don't really quite understand what you're talking about, Paul. They know exactly what he's talking about. Just like you and I reading this 2022, we have no problem understanding what he's talking about. So you can reach two conclusions. This is the fruit, this is the result of walking by the flesh. You can, I had students ask me this question. How do I know if I'm walking by the flesh? This viceless answers that question. Just like as we move into the next section, how do I know if I'm walking by the Spirit? You're starting to see the fruit of God's Spirit in your life. There, that's a test. So the second group is, I don't know what else to call them, so I call them religious sins. He says idolatry and sorcery. Now, idolatry, I don't believe that's difficult to define, but remember, he's writing to Greco-Roman people. And in the Greco-Roman cities of, of the ancient world, where, when, when Paul would live, you walk any one of those Greco-Roman cities, there were just idols everywhere. 
One of my favorite examples is if you ever read, do much study of the ancient city of Athens, Athens was the intellectual center of the Greco-Roman world. There were more idols in Athens than any other Greco-Roman city. I mean, you could hardly take a step where you weren't seeing an, an idol of one of the Greco-Roman gods. So that did not take any imagination for the people of Galatians to understand what he meant. But for you and me, that's a little more difficult. Because we don't have statues to Zeus or Aphrodite in our cities. But idolatry, by definition, is anything that takes the place of God in your life. Where do you, what, rephrase that, what, to what do you bow? To what do you give allegiance? To what do you give devotion? We start asking those penetrated questions about yourself honestly, with brutal honesty. You can, you can answer that question with a lot of specific things. I'm much more interested. I'm going to, I hope I don't offend any, so I'll use two examples. I, I'm much more interested in what Sean Hannity has to say than what God has to say. I'm much more interested in what Rachel Maydow has to say than what God, using the two extremes of the political spectrum. Now, I, I'm, not trying to, I'm not trying to be humorous or funny. I'm trying to be, this is something we need to think about. This is something we need. What to what do we bow to? What we, do we give allegiance? And I want to tell you, we can subtly slip into idolatry pretty easily. Obviously, another example would be money or material things. And it, it's it, Paul is just saying, how do I know I'm walking by the flesh? Where are your priorities? To what do you bow? To what do you give allegiance? And in sorcery, which is how the NAV ESV translates that, we get our word pharmacy from that word that's translated as sorcery. It was the worship of pagan gods using drugs that put you into a, a, a trance-like state where you worship and so on. Again, to me, that's a little bit easier to identify with today. In some, in some instances. And so all Paul is doing is giving illustrations of what, what really does he mean by walking in by or with the power of the flesh? Religious things that distort and pervert your allegiance to God. And then the next group is the longest group of the four. I'd call them social sins or social vices. And I, most of these are not difficult to, to, to define. I read again from the ESV, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, you could translate that fits of rage, rivalries, selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions, envy. Now, there, there are eight vices, if you will, eight works of the flesh. You don't have to go to the Greco-Roman ancient world to see examples of those. They're everywhere. Let's just walk through them real quickly again. Enmity, and we get a word enemy from that. Enemy, the hatred towards someone. The second one is strife. Strife and enmity go together. Hatred of someone, the enemy of you, leads to strife. It, it leads to discord, the result of that hatred and, and enmity. Jealousy, I think you all know what that means. You're jealous of someone else's achievement. You're jealous of someone else's position. Fits of anger, you could translate that fits of rage. That, that, that Greek word is wonderful. It's smoldering inside of us. It's smoldering inside of us and it explodes in a fire of rage. You have to use your imagination to get your arms around that one intellectually. And then rivalries, uh, sometimes that's translated selfish ambition. 
the commitment to get ahead no matter what. No matter what the cost, I'm going to get ahead. No matter whom I have to step over, I'm going to get ahead. Whom I have to hurt, doesn't matter, I'm going to get ahead. And then the last three, dissensions that, and, and divisions, dissensions, factions, dissensions, little clique groups, factions which divide people. And then finally, of course, envy. The desire to, where jealousy is you're jealous of a person. Envy is you, you want what they have. You desire what they have. And so on. And then he closes out this vice list with the fourth group, fourth group, and I didn't know what else to call those, so I called those alcoholic sins, drunkenness, that's exactly what it means, and orgies. And that, that particular Greek word, orgies, was associated with the worship of the god Bacchus, B-A-C-C-H-U-S, who was the god of wine in the Greco-Roman world. And the way in which you celebrated and worshiped Bacchus was getting drunk. Go into these, these drunken orgy festivals. And so when, when a Greco-Roman person would go, oh, I know what he's talking about. But for you and me, we, we don't quite have those, but we do not have to stretch our imagination to envision drunken orgies. I mean, those kinds of things, you read, and that could involve not only alcohol, but it could involve chemical substances and so on, which lead to that absolutely inhibited behavior, which is what orgies really are. So, again, I, I want to I make sure that you have clarity in what Paul is saying. If you want to know what walking by the power of the flesh looks like, this vice list helps you to understand that. If these are the things that characterize your life on a regular basis, you're not walking in by or with the Spirit. It's that simple. There's nothing com complex about this. And this is what, what Paul is saying in both Romans 7, which I read at the beginning, and what he just summarized very briefly for us in verse 17. It, it's not that we're not going to see these things in our lives as Christians. But are they dominating our choices, our lifestyle, and our habits? The routines of our lives, is this what we see? And he makes sure we understand something. He ends this list with this phrase, and things like these. What's that telling us? This isn't an exhaustive list. There's much more I could add to this. It's almost like saying, what's wrong with that? But you get the point. <laughs> and then he reminds us of something. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, and the, the Greek word for do is prosentes. It means the practice of habitually It's in the present continuous tense. It doesn't mean you do them once. That's not what he's saying. Those who prosuntes constantly, continually do these things as lifestyle choices. That's what he means. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to see this stuff in the kingdom. This is not what you're going to see in the kingdom. Don't expect to inherit and see this in the kingdom of God. You will not see this. It is not. It is counter to everything that the kingdom of God stands for. It's not compatible. It, meaning this list, is not compatible with a spirit-filled life. Jim, could you explain the presence of the Holy Spirit on earth in light of where our country is today? Also, uh, as we're moving forward as Christians, to see that situation reach out to those people with a testimony. We can't run from those people uh, because he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. How do we address that issue? Thank you for asking such a simple question. Um, <laughs> appreciate it. Well, in a way, you, you sort of answered your own question, but I have found it helpful in about the last five years. I've been thinking more this way. The 21st century church in America resembles the first century church we read about in the New Testament. 
we're a minority. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians particularly, that the clarity of that is you guys are in a minority in a heathen, grossly immoral city. How do we live? And they, he lays out some things at the beginning, and then they ask him seven questions, and he answers those questions. And what he's saying to them, I, I'm not telling you to run away and go up on a mountain and wait for Jesus to come back. You're in that culture. You're in it, but you're not of it. And so you are representing the values, the standards, and the virtues of the living God. Is that easy? No, it is not. But you are to represent Christ in that culture. You, are will, you must be willing to talk about Christ in that culture. But as he says in chapter 9, be shrewd in how you do that. And he uses himself as an example. This is what he says. To the Greek, I'm a Greek. I understand the Greek perspective. I understand the Greek worldview. I understand the Greek audience. So I'm sensitive to that. I'm clear about, you see it greatly manifested in Acts 17 when he speaks on the Areopagus. That's exactly what he does. And he says, to the Jew, I'm a Jew. What is that? He was a Jew. He came from the Jewish culture. But he's very sensitive to the Jew. He's very sensitive to where their priorities, their priorities are, where, where their perspectives are, their worldview. And he speaks to that, but he keeps bringing up Christ. He bringing up Christ. And then he makes a big covering statement. I become all things to all men that I might win some. And I would add something that my mentor, when I was ordained decades and decades and decades and decades ago, my mentor said to me, Jim, it is not your business to change people. That's God's business. And then he added, just be faithful. And that, for me, that is probably one of the most important things anybody's ever said to me. Because I, to be faithful, and now what I'm doing in, in, in these years is faith. I study hard, I prepare hard, and I present God's word, but the results are up to him. None of you guys are ever changed or transformed by God's word. I believe it's not my fault. I have worked hard to present it to you. But God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who works. And it's that, it's that spiritual transformation that the Holy Spirit takes that obligation. We don't take that. Isn't it freeing that we don't have to change anybody? That is a very freeing thought. I don't have to change people. God's the one who changes. I just present faithfully the word of God. Um, I just have a, a question about this word, uh, scripture from verse 19 all the way to 26. So, you know, for us, this seems like very common kind of preaching. Stop doing this and stop doing that, and all the kind of sickness of society that he's addressing. But at that time, it seems like this is the very first time any preacher or any apostle was kind of diverting from the message that uh, was common uh, during the gospel, where Jesus was addressing the hypocrisy of religious leaders, talking about demons, talking about things, and Jesus did not address himself such kind of horrible disease of the society. And Paul is coming up with this idea um, about addressing this community in a specific way, and which is common to us today, but at that time it was not. Is that right? So am I right about that? And is that going to give us an example how to address disease of our society today or not? Again, there's an awful lot rolled into <laughs> your comments and your questions. Um, I mean, I take you back to, to what I said when I was paraphrasing Paul's argument in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Um, when you and I are talking to someone in the United States, well, anywhere in the world, but you live in the United States, the United States, it is very important that we strive to understand where they're coming from. In other words, are they Hindu? Are they Buddhist? Are they Muslim? Are they an atheist? To have some kind of, and the only way you can, the only way you can find that out if you have the time is asking questions. So, I mean, to me, I'm, I'm answering, I'm answering your question slash comments in that way. Our obligation is to be faithful in presenting, in both living and presenting the gospel to people. But that also means I become all things to all men that I might win some. It, it's really my, if I have the time. 
if you're sitting on an airplane next day and you got a four-hour flight ahead of you, that's a great opportunity to start to find out where somebody's from if they're willing to talk to you. But if you, you bump into somebody on the street and you say, I want to have a conversation, I have six questions I want to ask you, that's not going to work. You know, don't try that method. But it's, it's trying to find out to a degree where this person is coming from. Because then, then God, the Holy Spirit, will give you the right things to say to that person. But Paul is not, what Paul is not doing here is saying, here's a list of vices I don't want you to do. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your life is a struggle between the desire to do these things and the desire to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, which we haven't covered yet. And that's, you have to recognize that struggle. And the one, the one that you give allegiance to is the one you feed, the one you pay attention to, the one you by faith draw on. It's very easy to live by the flesh because that's what I used to do before I came to Christ in 1972. For the rest of my life, it's now 2022, I've been learning what it means not to feed the flesh, what it means to feed the spirit, which is spending time in God's word, having conversation with God continuously, depending on the allegiance of other people who care about me, my wife, my kids, as well as friends. All of those things are part of that matrix of how we walk in by with the Spirit. But in terms of our testimony, our testimony to the Lord is not, I don't want you to do these 19 things don't do. Here's the things I want you to do, come to Christ. That is the worst method to do evangelism. Because you're telling people it's about what you do, and God's only interested in what you do. He's not. But, but what he's what I was trying to and I thank you for that mention that's amazing actually but what what he's talking about over here for sexual immorality jealousy and all of that stuff those are not things that Jesus highlighted during his ministry and during you know the gospel now Paul is presenting it in a different way Jesus was presenting about you know um, uh, how the hypocrisy of the religious leaders the Pharisees and he talked about the even the altar's woman is telling her you know sin no more. And all of a sudden, this comes in, Paul is coming in and highlighting those things that are a disease or that society or, or uh, some kind of uh, worship or idols of that time, from sexual immorality. From, this is never talked about. Well, I would tell, I want to share that I completely agree with you there, because if you read carefully the Sermon on the Mount, the fullest account of that is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Lord Jesus talks a lot about personal morality. there. But he never talked about drinking. This guy is talking about drinking, which is which I'm not disagreeing. I'm actually well, I'm trying to well, hold uh, to be the, the yeah, and, yeah. I mean, generally speaking, particularly the terms he used about drunken drunken orgies related to the worship of Bacchus and all that stuff that was associated with that god. That had that resonated. They understood what he was talking about. For to talk about that to a Jew, they're gonna. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I have no idea what you're talking yeah. about. You go to Jerusalem and talk about that. They're going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. So, but what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, here's your law that God has given to you, that you are committed to walking with the Lord according to the law. I want you to understand, you don't understand the law. When God says, do not murder, the key word is premeditated murder. God, God is much more than that. If you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of that. What? What are you talking about? If you call your brother a name, you're guilty of that. He says, you've heard it said you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look with a woman, look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of that. And they're saying, what? We never did that because first century Judaism had righteousness as an outward facade. Jesus is saying, no, no, it's not of the heart. God is interested in the heart. Jeremiah 4, 4, God is interested in circumcision of the heart. And so what Jesus is talking about was in the context of their understanding of Jewish law. Paul is talking in the context of Greco-Roman morality in the context of their worldview. These are the things that exhibit your worldview. You come to Christ, the process of sanctification, and the slow stuff to do road. Right this means that we can adapt to the same message and then try to address the time that we live in. And when somebody says, Jesus never talked about homosexuality when he did in the Sermon on the Mount. Right. He did. He talked Same about it. Because Paul said the example not. of how can we address the society at the time that we live in or the, the culture that he's even moving from one place to another in a different way. That's so right. this, the, the spirit of, the, you know, of God is going to show us what is right and what's wrong 
by addressing the things that society. We don't have to agree. Jesus never talked about how bad the TV or porn, for example, website. Well, Jesus never talked about that. But is that a good thing to do or not? We can address it from the foot of the spirit. Well, and, yeah, and, and Jesus used the same word Paul uses, porneia. He uses that word. And you could take pornographic stuff and put it in that word. Pornet fits there. It's, it's part of that very, very broad word. All right, now, Jim, thank you, Mark. Well, it was a bunny trail, but I hope it was a valid, helpful bunny trail. We're now back on track. The bunny trail's over. Verse 22. What's the first word of verse 22? <laughs> He's not hearing me. Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question. What's the first word of verse 22? But. but. Now, he's setting up the strong adversative, the strong contrast. Here is how you know if you're walking by the flesh. All these things we just walked through. But the fruit of the, here's how you know if you're walking by in by or with the spirit. There are three groupings here, not four. There are three groupings here. Each one has three virtues: love, joy, peace. Group one, patience, kindness, goodness. Group two, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Group three. So I want to make two observations here. Number one, please note. The word fruit, it's singular. I've heard people say the fruits of the Spirit. That's not the right way to say it, because that's not the word. It's fruit. And that is important because this, and this is central, this is an organic, collective whole. You don't say, okay, Lord, let's work on the first fruit of the Spirit, love. And when I have that mastered, then we'll go on to joy. If that's your approach, you will spend the rest of your life on the first one. That, that's not how God looks at it. He, he doesn't look at it that way anyway. The Holy Spirit, and that's the other point, this is not your fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces this in your life. Because the sign of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. He's the energizing power of the new covenant. And it is he who transforms you. So you can, I used to say this, how do I know the Holy Spirit is transforming me? Well, look at the fruit. Do you see some evidence of this now in your life? Are you seeing a greater capacity to love people than you did 10 years ago? Don't feel proud about that. It's not great things you've done. It's what the Holy Spirit is doing. So it's singular. They're all integrated together, and it's what the Spirit produces in our life. He is the one producing this. I'm not. And God doesn't hide that from us. Not he, at all. He, he reinforces it, I think, through the Holy Spirit. Doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, John says in First John, it, he testifies to us that we are the children of God. It's an experiential aspect of our walk with the Lord. And there's it, nothing wrong with experience, but experience, which is validated and informed by truth. It's not just experience, but it's experience validated by the truth of God's word. Now, we have 10 minutes to go through nine enormously important virtues. We're never going to get it done. But we're going to start. It'll take us... This is how I, this is my grouping. You may not agree with these. But the first grouping, remember, each, there are three groups. Each one has three. I've called the first group habits of the mind. Love, joy, peace. These are habits of the mind that affect our attitudes and our outward behavior. Now, I, everyone, I'm pretty certain that would be accurate. I think everyone in this this room or even online knows that the word love there is agape. There are three words in the New Testament for love. This is agape, and that's that self-sacrificing, other-centered love. That's how men are to love their wives. That's how we're to love it. That's what 1 Corinthians 13, that majestic, powerful chapter that you're all familiar with. That that's how love is described. It's an other-centeredness, but please note, it's number one. It's probably number one in this list for the reason. It's the foundation of everything else. 
And a way to look at this is in um, 1 John chapter 4. Um, it just came into my mind, so I'm going to approach it this way. 1 John chapter 4, two times in that chapter, John declares, God is love. He doesn't say God manifests love. He does. It's all over the Bible. That, that God shows love. No, God is love. It's predicate nominative. I know you're all glad I told you that in grammar. But when he says God is love, what does he mean by that? He doesn't say God shows love, God acts in love, God demonstrates. He says God is love. What does he mean by that? It's his being. That's, That's part of his he being. He is love. Now, I want you to think with me. Think deeply about this, man. When John declares God is love, the only way that makes sense is if God is Trinity. Amen. Father, Son, Spirit. In John chapter 5, verse 19 through 24, Jesus says, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. Later on in the book, he brings in the Spirit. Okay, now what does that mean? That there's love and communication between the members of the Trinity. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. John 5, 19 through 24. So when John declares God is love, then this is the biggest problem for Islam. They believe God is one. Allah is one. Very important monotheism. But they abjectly reject the idea of God is Trinity. You walk into the Dome of the Rock on Temple Mount, it says, one who believes God is Trinity is anathema. One who teaches that Jesus is the Son of God is anathema translating the Arabic, but that's basically what it says. They will absolutely vehemently deny, pound their fist on the table that God is Trinity. But men, I want to tell you something. You will search in vain to find much in the Quran that talks about the love of Allah for humanity. Because the test of God's love, Father, Son, and Spirit, is he solves our sin problem by the second person coming to earth to solve our sin problem. So when, when, when Paul is listing the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces in us as we allow him to produce it, love. We see people the way God sees people. I love my wife as Christ loved the church. I mean, on and on and on. So it's the foundational virtue of genuine biblical Christianity. And so if... If this is the fruit, all nine of these, if this is the fruit that God produces in my life, I should be able, if, if I am walking in by with the Spirit, I should be able to see in my life, not for my own glory and my own self-elevation, but I should see in my life evidence of the love of God in my life being manifested. It should be evidence of how you relate to your wife, how you relate to your kids, how you relate to your neighbors, how you relate to your work, even the workplace, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And most importantly, how you relate to people in church, because people in church aren't nice. Who likes who likes people? Because everybody in church brings all their baggage to church. And it's all the stuff. Churches are messy places. But that's what he's saying. It's that capacity and that supernatural ability sourced in the power of spirit to love people. I don't want to love people. In my flesh, I don't. I mean, my life, like I want to, I'm relocating to a new office. I want to go back to my new office next week, and I want to stay there the rest of the summer, just study and read and write. We know that, Jim, but we love But God, God does not want me to do that. And it would be, it would be shameful for me to do I'm using, an, I'm using an exaggerated example, but you know what I'm talking about. What's that? Yeah, very easy to be loved. Yes, you, you are, you are. You know, since you're not going to get it done anyway. Isn't a more simple answer to the question he brought up how we influence society as we moves through society, like in, when I'm military, people would say when we're teaching, why, why are you not going to do this? You sure. shouldn't have the opportunity to say, I don't because. that because. Yeah. And that's the way we influence one person at a time. Yeah, exactly. Without trying to take 
these great big giant steps. How do I buy a TV show to tell people you're never going to reach them that way or not? The one-on-one. Yeah, it is, and that that was the strategy that Paul wanted the Corinthians to to adopt, and that's and that when you think when you really start to think honestly about Jesus, I mean Jesus was on earth 33 and a half years, but he was really only active three years. And how many people did he reach? Billions? Millions? Hundreds of thousands? Probably not. Tens of thousands. And as Bill correctly said, most of them, in terms of its effect, was one on one, one on one. And it's, it's the approach that I think we and it is part of responding to Mark's question, but it, it, it's part of the, the fruit that the Holy Spirit is talking about here is really exhibited and really powerfully manifested one-on-one with people. Now, I don't agree with a lot of what he said, but Francis of Assisi made this statement one time. At all times, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. <laughs> Now, again, you have to dissect that, but for the most part, what Assisi was saying, Francis was saying, he was from Assisi, a town in Italy, but what Francis was saying is how you live is just as important as what you speak. And I know when I was raising my children, I could say something that was very virtuous and very in line with God's word, but if I didn't live it, it took them five seconds to point that out to me. So I mean that and that 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 sequence of living as well as speaking is what what the fruit of the spirit are all about. Uh, fruit singular is all about. I have one comment here about love. I think I actually from my own belief is when you say God loves, this means that He's a being that's capable of doing a good. But when you say God is love, this means that He's not a being. He's not created. He is that creator. And only through the Spirit he can love. Because we can that's downsize right. him if we say that he loves. That's but right. he is love is a different thing. So that's no, that's right. And it is, it's a part of his being. It's who he is. It's not what he does. It's who he is. It's like God is holy. That's not only what he does. He does holy things. But he is holy. And that's what he calls upon us to be. So, yeah. And it's, it, that's why I love sanctification. It's the Father's transforming us in the image of his Son through the Holy Spirit. And so as the being of Jesus is love, is holiness, is truth, we are being transformed into that. And that's, that's the mark. That's the goal. There's the bullseye up there. That's where we're headed. But we don't reach that perfectly until we get to heaven and receive our glorified bodies. But it, we are in the we're in process. And therefore, the, the second one... <laughs> Well, I just mentioned the second one is joy. Joy is not the absence of sorrow. It's gratitude toward God. Can you have a spirit of joy with tears running down your face? Yes. With a pain in the in your gut that you can't even explain. Yeah. Joy is not circumstance controlled. Joy is spirit controlled. Nehemiah 8.1, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Joy is an attitude about life. And it isn't, joy is not always evident by a smile on your face or by laughter or as I said a moment ago, the absence of sorrow. Because you can have the joy of the Lord in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Because it's that attitude that's rooted in, I know who God is, I know and understand his sovereignty, I believe he has my best interests at heart, he promised he'd never leave me, never forsake me to the end of the age, he would always be with me. I don't understand, but I can have that attitude, not circumstance control, spirit control, 
This is, to me, this is one of the greatest challenges in the process of, of sanctification. Because all of our lives, we are conditioned to respond to circumstances. Faith is learning not to be reactive only to circumstances, but to be proactive in my faith and trust in God, regardless of the circumstances. Now, those two sentences I just uttered are very easy to utter, are very difficult to live. There are very few people, honestly, there are very few people in my life that I could assign an illustration for me personally that really exhibited the joy of the Lord pretty consistently. One was my grandmother, my mother's mother, and the other was my wife. It's not me. And if you want to ask Peggy or my children, they'll tell you, Dad struggled with exhibiting joy in a consistent way. It's one of those attitudes of life that it's very important that we also do not make joy a synonym for happiness. Now, happiness is a wonderful word. It's a biblical word. There's nothing. But I hope I can remember how to say this. Happening, happiness depends on our happenings. And if our happenings do not happen to happen the way we want our happenings to happen, we are unhappy. Did you get all that? But happiness is really a response to circumstances. Joy is a response to God. And that's a big difference. And there are times when we will be experientially and emotionally unhappy, but we can still have the joy of the Lord. An example would be at a funeral, the loss of a loved one. Uh, a, 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 extremely difficult set of circumstances that can involve something external or something internal or whatever. And again, it's not a very easy thing to exhibit. There was a guy in our church who died a couple of weeks ago. He was 38 years old. He had a long bout with cancer. He, he died. Um, left a dear wife, tremendous gal, and two little children. But Luke exhibited the joy of the Lord. He would take guys to lunch those last two years of his life, and he would just say to them, I don't want to talk about the wall scores. I want to talk about the weather. I want to talk about eternal things. With a beaming smile on his face, and we just, with energy and excitement, talk about Christ. Talk about the importance of these guys finding the joy of the Lord by putting their faith. He had lived it. He exhibited it. And this guy was dying of cancer. Extreme pain. One of my friends... Uh, uh, told me he went to coffee with Luke uh, about eight days before he died. And Luke insisted on paying for the coffee, but you know, he couldn't even get the, his wallet out of his pant pocket. He was in so much pain. So my friend had to go around the back of the chair, pull his wallet out of I mean, you, know, you think, oh my goodness. But I mean, it's just that kind of witness, even in the midst of extreme circumstances that are adverse to everything we regard as happy, still exhibit the joy of the Lord. Luke did that. And Luke made, a, Luke made an impact. That, that had, my son-in-law was senior vice president with Luke in the same area. And uh, the, the boss of the company was at the funeral, and he said, we're going to adopt a new model for this company, the company's builder trend. He said, the new model is we're going to live like Luke. Just isn't that a fantastic witness? We're going to live like Luke. Now, I don't know if that model is really what the company is going to officially adopt. But as I heard that, I thought, oh, my, what? Not, it wasn't only Luke, what Luke said. It's how Luke lived. He made an impact for Christ. At all times, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. That was Luke. He lived it, and he talked about it. I'm way over time, so I'm going to have to quit. We will pick up. With the third one of the habits of the mind, shalom, irene, peace. Okay? Thank you for your good questions and good discussion today. I hope this was a great, uh, great reminder of what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and his writings. Thank you for his spirit-inspired challenge to us. How do I know if I'm walking 
in the power of the flesh. Look at that passage. How do I know if I'm walking in the power of the Spirit? Look at this passage. Lord, help us to not be passive and complacent in the process of sanctification, but to be active, to develop strategies for holiness in our lives, strategies that enable us to get off our duff and be serious about walking in loving obedience with you, not because we earn merit points with you, but because we love you. Sanctification is not motivated by an angry, pernicious God. It's motivated by a loving God who sent his son and who gave us his spirit so that we can walk in loving obedience. So, Lord, help us to have that right perspective and desire to walk with you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Lord Jesus coming to earth, living the life that you lived with victorious living and your death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, completed your work. You're now seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for him to say, go get your church. In the meantime, thank you for sending the Spirit who indwells us, who empowers us, and who enables us as he develops his fruit in our lives. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.